0: Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is episode 131 of Yoga Land. Today is a very special episode. It is a live episode that we recorded at the Prana store in San Francisco on Fillmore Street. Thank you to Prana and to all of the wonderful people who put on a great live event. The topic of the conversation was yoga as radical self care. If you've been following me on social media, you know this is a big theme for me lately. It will continue to be a big theme for me. I'm more of a believer in proactive, conscious self-care than ever, and it turns out so are many of you, because the people who turned up to the event, we just had such a lively engaging conversation afterward, and I promised them I would not record them because I think it can make people self-conscious in a public place talking about these things, but it was just really clear to me that it was a topic that resonated really well with everyone. I also wanna thank the wonderful presenters, panelists who are there, Susanna Friedman, who you may remember from episode 125, and Caitlin Hildebrand, who you'll learn all about her. She's a phenomenal nurse and also a yoga teacher, and just just a very accomplished, thoughtful human being. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving holiday. We enjoyed it very much and had a super quiet holiday in San Francisco, which I always love when the city clears out. And Jason is about to head to Hong Kong the day that this episode will drop. Jason will be on a plane heading to Hong Kong to teach module one of his 300-hour training. If you live nearby, there might still be spaces in that one. But if you want to take modules two or three, you can take them all in different orders and whatever order works for you. And he's teaching again in Hong Kong in 2019. If you want to check on any dates for Jason, you can check our schedule page. It's jasonyoga.com slash schedule, or you can sign up for our newsletter and you can do that on our homepage or really on pretty much any page of our site. You can sign up for our newsletter and we send them out fairly regularly with schedule updates. I hope this episode inspires you to take care of yourselves during this very busy season and beyond. And if you enjoy the podcast, please don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review and tell us what you think. We appreciate it so, so, so much. And we, of course, read every single one. Okay, enjoy the interview. So I want to just take a moment to introduce Susanna and Caitlin in depth a little bit more. Susanna Friedman is a yoga teacher here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's taught at Wanderlust Festival and is on the core faculty at the Love Story Yoga Teacher Training in San Francisco. She also has her master's degree in philosophy and religion and is a second-generation astrologer. And she's recently been on Yogaland podcast talking about that. And she just wrote a book that you can find online called Suffer Less, Using Yoga Principles to Live a More Peaceful Life. And people can find that on your website, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And Caitlin, Caitlin Hildebrand is the acting chief of advanced practice nursing at the San Francisco VA. She's an experienced adult and geriatric nurse practitioner and is assistant clinical professor for UCSF at the VA in internal medicine. She's currently a fellow in integrative medicine with the University of Arizona, and she teaches yoga and mind-body skills groups at the VA and in the community. She's the author of The Love You Plan, a book on Using mindfulness and journaling to improve your relationship with food and body image. So, thank you both for being here. And thank you so much to Prana for having us. I thought I would just take a minute to talk about why I decided on this topic, why I think this topic is important. So, you know, we're talking about yoga as radical self care tonight. And first and foremost, I decided on the topic because. I Need self care, <laughs> and everyone I know right now need, is in need of self care for so many reasons for the, the busyness of the world that we live in, for sort of the, the chaos that we're all going through in our culture right now and around the world. And I'm gonna just read this definition from the New York Times on self care so, the practice of taking action to preserve or improve one's own health, self care is for anyone who wants it. It can be as easy and as free as taking a walk or as complex as learning a trade. Self-care can include but is not limited to saying no, buying things, refusing to buy things, taking a long walk, helping others, exercising, crafting, stockpiling things like coins and arranging them meticulously into Ziploc bags, (laughs) stretching, listening to disco, spending time alone, singing karaoke, intending to one day start meditating. (laughs) So the reason I really love that definition, it kind of resonated with me is because I looked it up. There are 9 million hashtags on Instagram <laughs> with the word self-care. So I think sometimes when, when things get spread broadly, they're not necessarily as deep. And that's fine. I mean, I think, you know, if you think of self-care as getting a manicure and pedicure, that's totally fine. But I think that yoga practice, the foundation of yoga practice can give us the tools to create a self-care practice that really brings deep wellness into our lives. And I think the foundation of that is because yoga is such a practice of going inward and cultivating self-awareness. And, you know, we're, we're trying to observe our breath. We're observing our physical constitution, our likes, our dislikes, our attractions, our aversions places where we're strong and the places where we need shoring up a little bit more. So I think when you approach self-care from that place, it can be truly radical. I also think of yoga as a practice of radical self-acceptance. And so I think when you are creating rituals for yourself that are true to you, you have to, by your very nature, accept who you are and and your kind of strengths and weaknesses. So. That's my little, little, little spiel about why I think it's so important. And it's also worth noting that, that historically, self care, from what I understand, it began as uh, a term in the medical community and it really came into, you know, everyday people with the rise of the women's movement and the civil rights movement. So it was this idea that marginalized people were feeling like the healthcare system had failed them. So they were creating healthcare for themselves in a way, and it was empowering. And there's also these trends that you can see that this focus on self-care increased after 9-11, focus on self-care increased after the election in 2016. And we don't need to talk about politics tonight. We're not going to talk about politics tonight. But, but just this idea of The fact that our country feels divided, the fact that things are just kind of chaotic right now, according to Mr. Google, a lot of us are really trying to figure out how to take care of ourselves, so.
1: Mr. Google's (laughs) off taking care of herself. Yeah,
0: (laughs) hopefully. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah, so Susanna, let's start with you. Okay. And I'm just would love to know something about your self-care and you know, perhaps how it's changed or evolved since you started a yoga practice as an adult. I know you had a yoga practice as a kid too, yeah. but you know, just talking about your adult life.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um yeah, so it's been about 15 years since I've had a sustained practice, but that has taken many different forms and that was honestly, part of the self-care aspect was allowing my yoga practice to change and take different forms because I used to be a thousand percent asana all the time. And I still really love asana, but it doesn't actually give me the same thing that it used to. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. And so my self-care in terms of yoga has really shifted towards silence. Like Mm -hmm. I just want to be quiet. I don't want anybody to talk to me. And I just want some time to not have any noise. You know, it's really, it's said um, in many different ways, but that truth is heard in silence. And so I spend a lot of my time talking, you know? And so like after class, no music in the car, nothing, just like silence. I get home, my poor boyfriend. Wants to talk to me. He
0: can and, talk to me. Spouses of yoga teachers yeah. need to band together because yeah. it's true. When I first started dating Jason, I was like, you talk all day and then you come home and there's, you don't say much. Yeah. And then I met another yoga teacher's wife, Noah Mazey's wife, and we were laughing about it. It's very common.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, he's, like, probably pretty appreciative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that is really how I take care of myself now. And as a teacher... The amount of time I spend at my computer is absurd. I mean, I was at my computer yesterday for, well, actually I taught all day yesterday. So the day before I was at my computer for eight hours Mm -hmm. working, which I really didn't expect when I decided to become a yoga teacher. So stepping into the role of teacher has also really changed my practice and it's also really changed what serves me. And then the the last thing I'll say is that teaching has become a huge part of my self-care. Because one of the things that Stephanie, Stephanie Snyder is my like oldest main kind of like heart teacher. One of the things she said to me is teaching is now part of your spiritual practice. Because if you've chosen to be a yoga teacher, you've chosen to consistently be there for people. Mm-hmm. And like 98.9% of the time, I feel better after i taught than before. So, recognizing that is really important because then when I'm in moments of feeling like depleted or feeling whatever is going on, I no longer think that teaching is going to make me feel worse. I now know that it's going to make me feel a lot better. So, that's been a huge shift as well. But honestly, mostly it's just like being quiet.
0: Yeah. Did you always have that response after teaching or did it come with more experienced teaching?
1: Well, that response, I think, mostly came from the fact that the first three years that I was teaching in San Francisco, I didn't have a car. And so I was teaching everywhere I possibly could, which took me from the marina to outer, outer, outer mission, all on public transportation to class and from class. And so I think that's what it was born out of, was getting on public transportation after I taught and being like, I'm surrounded by people who have no idea what personal space is, who are going through their own things. So, like, of course, I can't expect them to be sensitive to my desire for peace, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) And that's what really made me realize the importance of quiet Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. taking the bus, (laughs) 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 to be honest.
0: It is also a place where you can be very anonymous, which is nice, public transportation.
1: Yeah. Maybe I have a better sort of, like, layer for that now. Thankfully I have a car, but <laughs> I would argue that like when I was twenty-five through twenty-eight in yoga clothes on Muni, there wasn't really that mm. much of a way for me to be anonymous.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> in the midst of this, me too. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, yeah.
0: So Caitlin, how about you as a as a healthcare practitioner, someone who is also in a profession where you're constantly caring
2: for other people. What are some important self-care practices for you? Well, I feel very similarly to you, Susanna, that teaching is one of my ultimate self-care. It is my fun time. Mm-hmm. It's my time to be creative. My background was in dance and gymnastics. So when I create my classes, I create them as I go. So it's this creative process for me every time. Also, sometimes it's tiny, small moments. You're really being present while I pet my cat, mm-hmm. putting my face next to her and listening to her purr. Mm-hmm going on a walk, being outside, the older I get, the more I crave to be outside. When I'm not at work, <laughs> hunched over my computer or seeing patients, I need to be outside. And that's where I find peace.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do you counsel patients, you know, working at UCSF, working at places that are pretty traditional places? Is it encouraged to talk about self-care with your patients? And if so, like, what's the language? And what are the protocols? What are you allowed to talk about with people? We are absolutely
2: encouraged to talk about self-care. I do work for the VA. I'm a professor for UCSF, so to clarify. And the VA is going through what we call cultural transformation towards whole health, where we're absolutely encouraged to talk with our patients about their comprehensive mind, body, spirit, wellness. Mm -hmm. In the moment, if they have crucial medical problems, that's what we're focused on, of course. But no, I mean, we are taught and encouraged. Consider people in all of the contexts that they're living. Yeah. And that means socially, in terms of how they relate to their community, how they can give back to their community. Asking people what what brings you joy, what gives you a sense of purpose, often helps them find motivation to make the changes they need to make for their own healthcare needs, Hmm. better management of their diabetes or their heart disease. That comes from feeling like I have worth and value and I'm worth taking care of. And so, this really powerful.
0: Yeah. That's so key. Someone, when I posted about this event on Instagram, someone posted that, you know, how important it is to model self care to the people around you, whether it's your daughter or your coworker or young people who are younger than you, because you are showing them your value and that you believe that that is a priority. And I think either of you can answer this question. But I mean, I just see such a direct connection between taking care of yourself, carving out that time so that you can show up in the world in the best way possible in the way that you need to. And I see such a connection between that and and what we teach in yoga. I see this idea that self-care isn't just about carving out time for yourself to take care of yourself. It's in the spirit of then going out and serving others. Yeah.
1: So, I almost always in the beginning of practice, when I always have people set intention and very regularly, I'll say, and then add, so I can be of service. Like your self-care has to be about sustaining yourself so that you can go out and serve the world. Otherwise, you're never going to be happy. Like in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks, he said, like, service is what sustains us. And... People might not get to that on their own, but they will get to the point of feeling so fatigued and so unhappy because everything they think would make them happy hasn't made them happy. And at a certain point, if you're paying attention at all, you have to kind of think, well, I've been serving myself this whole time and I'm still not happy. I guess I better try something different, which is serving someone who's not you. Yeah, that part is so important to me that this self-service isn't just to make us feel good, it's to make us available for people who need us. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's just interesting that you can come at it in either direction. You can come at it from like, okay, I'm going to do my self-care so that I can be of service or you can think, how do I want to be of service?
2: And then it actually helps you take care of yourself Mm -hmm. better. I I just never really thought about that. I think it is bi-directional. Yeah. I feel more inspired while I am able to inspire people to care better for themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it helps me be inspired to take care of myself. I mean, when I started teaching, I realized, whoa, I didn't realize that I needed to show up and almost be a spiritual leader for folks. I feel like yoga class is a combination of a gym, a bar, (laughs) and... (laughs) And I get both things out of that. I get to be healthy and I get to unwind, but in a much healthier way than perhaps <laughs> someone might at a bar. And it's also a church for many people to show up and have a consistent place where they feel like they can connect to something much deeper than themselves. So mm-hmm. I really feel honored to have that role in people's lives. Mm-hmm.
0: When you're talking to a patient, how do you determine at what point you're going to talk to them about lifestyle changes? And do you feel like you have to go around things a little bit? Or
2: I'm just really curious about how you handle that. So early in my practice, as a provider. I was so focused on knowing every medication and every treatment that I could prescribe and refer for. And then as time went on, I realized all those things are great, but none of them will matter if I don't inspire people to feel motivated to take care of themselves. So really, it's not when do I start talking about lifestyle, it's that I talk about lifestyle all the time. Hmm. Because the vast majority of the diseases we treat are related to lifestyle. So if we don't talk about that. And that's one of the reasons I think nursing is such a powerful base as a healthcare provider because nursing is really not just about disease, it's about healing mm-hmm. in a more spiritual way mm-hmm. than I think a lot of medical providers have been trained. That's shifting. I mean, in my fellowship in integrative medicine now, I'm profoundly touched by the the goals of other physicians that I am in fellowship with who want to get to that deeper level, to nourish themselves as providers too, to prevent burnout. Mm-hmm. So I mean we're all just human beings on this planet trying to get by. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk more about your fellowship. It's, your focus is on the role of spirituality in healthcare?
2: Uh, no, that isn't the focus overall, but okay. that's the thing that's getting me fired up most right now. I think because of what I was sharing before, which is that if we don't help people find what really motivates them, what gives them a sense of purpose, then nothing else matters. Hmm. And so asking people, you know, what gives you hope? where do you turn to in times of struggle can help you understand what their medical needs are in such a different and more profound way. Hmm. So can you say more about that? Like, just give any examples? Sure. Had a great example with one of my trainees today. We were talking about the fact that there was a patient who for years was not feeling motivated at all to care for his diabetes. And it wasn't until he felt like oh, I want to be there for my kids. Mm. I want to be the kind of dad that they can look up to, that everything started to turn around. So if we don't get to that deeper level of what, what are you inspired to do for yourself in your life?
0: Right, right. Instead of like, okay, well, you need to keep track of this sugar at this time, and that sugar at that time, and
2: you can't eat that, and you can't do this, and you have to walk 15 minutes more every day. And that doesn't work for anyone. right? I know for me, when I start getting in that mindset of, no, you can't eat this, and you Mm. can't do this, and it, it falls apart in an hour. Yeah. But when I think, what am I going to do more of mm-hmm. that I like to do? Mm-hmm. Great, mm-hmm. let me do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it just strikes me about this whole conversation about, and just what you were just saying is like maybe the first step in real healthcare or real self care, rather, is like understanding your why.
2: Mm-hmm. Because
1: if you don't understand your why, then everything is going to be surface. Mm-hmm. It's not tied to anything. It's not anchored to anything. And so, I mean, just thank you for saying that I'm just like, so I have friends who are veterans and I'm so, and they live in the area and I'm just like, so grateful that you're there providing this. And I think that's such an important piece. Like how do you even know what the first step to take is if you have no idea why you're doing what you're doing. And sometimes that's how it goes. We have to just sort of start by doing something, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make sense to bring in the why so much later, you know? Because then you have to do this whole rearranging thing again. Rather than if you know your why pretty quickly, then you can be like, oh, well, this is in service of my why and this isn't. And that's a really much easier way to make decisions.
0: And it's just so much more human to, to talk to people about what motivates them to be healthy rather than the laundry list of things they have to do mm-hmm. to be healthy. Yeah. I think I'm like much kinder to myself with all of these things since becoming a mom, just because it's so hard on your body. And it's just so it's it's the hardest job I'll ever have. Like for me, I, I don't have any question about carving out like regular little periods of self-care. You know, I try to like bookend my day basically with like a nice ritual in the morning and a nice ritual in the evening. No matter what happened in the middle, I have those two things, like something to look forward to. And then also, I think creativity is a really big part of self-care for me. That's just like a different kind of self-care is getting into a flow state, whether it's like in a yoga class or in meditation or journaling or or something like that. And you wrote a book all about journaling and you've talked about creativity. So is that part of what you talk to people about Is, is this concept of the flow state or creativity as
2: well? Or do you start with just like... I should talk to them more about creativity. (laughs) That's a great approach. I haven't, but I do find that the journaling has been profound. And that came from my own experience. I have struggled with body image my whole life, starting in dance and gymnastics, (laughs) as many people can probably agree with. And then later on, after an eating disorder, I gained a lot of weight. And then I was very scared to try to lose it because I didn't want to go back to that disordered eating pattern. So I decided to blog and I wrote a blog for accountability and also so people that love me could check in with me and making sure I wasn't doing anything too extreme. That's great. Um, And it really worked. And so after that, people started saying, well, you should write a book. And I've been working on the book ever since. I'm planning now to revise it to include a lot more of the mindfulness content that Mm -hmm. I've been focused on in the last couple of years because that's if I my definition well it's not mine Kabat-Zinn the most famous researcher in mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment without judgment and with loving kindness and I'll tell you I was practicing yoga for many years without loving kindness Hmm. and so I wasn't doing mindfully and so it's only about really accepting yourself for who you are, like you mentioned, accepting your body for where it is in this moment right now. Yeah. And then that way, that mindfulness, as we infuse that into our self-care practices, then we're doing it not for aesthetics, mm-hmm. not, but for real, true, vibrant, radiant health. Yeah. I just feel like
0: healing from body image issues is just a lifelong process i don't know anyone like even you know male or female it's so interesting and odd that we we put this pressure on our wrapper right this is just Mm -hmm. like the wrapper on the outside of us and we've all been tortured in some well i shouldn't say all but so many of us have in some time at some time or another in some way or another you know struggled with that to the point where like The internal narrative is so strong that you really do have to like completely reframe it so that you feel like, well, for me, so that I feel like I'm so happy that my body gets to do what it gets to do. And when I do a good thing for my body, like doing yoga or something like that, it's like, oh, and I have to actually pause and remind myself, like, doesn't that feel good? You know, I have to sort of be really, really elementary with the way that I I re-coach myself in that. So it's just interesting. Just got back from Hawaii where I was on a beach, you know, for like seven days in a bathing suit. I was like a middle-aged mom. It's not easy. But I really, it was the first time that I was ever like, I am not going to be mean to myself. I am not. It's just, it's not going to happen. No one cares. And you know what? (laughs) Nobody cared. Like (laughs) nobody was like... You know, nobody my daughter wasn't like, oh, mom. I mean, it's like no. Everyone's just there. Well, you're enjoying beautiful. the beautiful. I want to point oh, this stuff. Oh, go on. Oh, go on. <laughs> I just think yoga philosophy has so many beautiful examples of self care, mm-hmm. and I know this is like your jam. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just give you that opportunity to talk about some specific examples from yoga philosophy. I love
1: you. <laughs> so I forget exactly how you phrased the question, but I. Th- are there any specific sutras or anything from the Vedas
0: mm-hmm.
1: speak to this? Embody. That's yeah that saying. embody it. Right. And I was thinking about it. I had a good nerdy chuckle to my The Vedas I'm not as well versed in. They're very confusing. There might be. There might be. Right? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure someone listening knows exactly like what part of the Vedas. But I was thinking about how this text, the Yoga Sutras, has been around. Some people say for five thousand years, and it stood the test of time. And in my mind, the first self help book.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it
1: literally is saying. I mean, there's a sutra, it's sutra two thirteen. For those of you reading along at home, <laughs> and it says "Heam dukam anagatam," and it means all future suffering is avoidable. And then the rest, like the whole yoga sutras is like, how do you relieve your own suffering? How do you take care of yourself actually? And it gives all of these different ways to do it. And then it says, which Jason says in his trainings and he multiple times, you do one thing. And if it doesn't work, do the exact opposite thing. And it's not at all constrained in the way that you might expect a text like this to be constrained or constraining rather. And it's also not. It's written so that it's open for interpretation, but because it's written that way, it can seem very removed, Mm -hmm. but it's not at all removed. It's literally dealing with what all of us go through all day, every day. Are you being nice? Are you being honest? Are you stealing from people? Stop. (laughs) Like, are you taking more than you need? Because that doesn't make any of us happy, you know? And so like the whole Yoga Sutra is like, sure, I can go through... I mean, Sutra 133 is really, really beautiful. And it's all about greeting people with kindness, regardless of how they approach you. I love that one. Yeah. It's like, um, and it's all these things that are like, oh, do you want to be happy? Try this.
0: Exactly. I feel like it's, yeah, it's open, but it's all about your own experimentation. Like, absolutely. Like, try this. And if that doesn't work, then try this. Yeah. Then try this. Yeah. <laughs> which is really, I think what I was trying to get across in the beginning, which is like, once you know yourself and you try all of these things, like in the yoga context, you have so much more of an ability to take care of yourself in other settings. Right.
1: Yeah. A thousand percent. And I think, you know, like even with the eight limbs, which are like the path of Raja Yoga. So anyone who's doing a physical practice, this is part of their lineage, which is good to know. It's from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And, um, and, it, you know, asana, the physical practice is the third thing. The first thing are like how we treat other people. The second thing is how we treat ourselves. And then the third thing is how we get ready to sit to think about those first two things. The third thing, the asana part, isn't even like how well you move your body. It's now sit and think about that. Yogananda's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad Gita starts with the blind king asking the witness to the battle to tell him what happened. And Yogananda talks about how our ego is the blind king. The person who tells the story of the Bhagavad Gita is the impartial witness. And so every night, the blind part of ourselves is supposed to ask the impartial witness part of ourselves, what side has won out? the good or the bad. And it's like, if you can just sit for a second with that every day, I don't know how your life won't be better. If you just really love to be sad and you really love to be upset and you really love to think you're the worst person, which some people do, you know, that's part of the painful reality. Then you might say like, oh, I'm the worst every day. This bad part has won out. But in that moment of sitting and thinking about that, you have an opportunity to say, oh, that is what I led with today? Like, did that actually make me feel very good? Not really. So I really think like every yogic text in the like really traditional canon are self-care books or self-help books.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about the yoga sutras lately because I did a podcast recently yeah. on that new book, Living Sutra. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also interviewed a, a professor of religious studies who, you know, just like knows so many texts back, backwards and forwards. And I said to her, like, why is this our central text in modern yoga? I'm just fascinated by it. Mm-hmm it's just pervasive, you know, it's everywhere. And she said, you know, because it's so easy to incorporate into yeah. your life because it's just, I think that's like the perfect character- characterization yeah. for a self-help book. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Patanjali.
0: <laughs>
1: just imagine like the old school Dr. Phil like interviewing Patanjali <laughs> about his self-help book.
0: When you're teaching and you notice... Suffering in your students. Do you think about how to help them clear that so that they can become aware of that and take better care of themselves, 100%. like in the moment? Yes,
1: thousand yeah. yeah. percent. It's so easy to see when that's happening, whether it's for a physical reason or not a physical reason. And the physical reason is obviously easier to address, and it honestly just requires more often than not a teacher saying, "Just relax." Yeah, or I was actually talking to another doctor who was saying the word relax can be very triggering for people. So, and I stopped using it because of that. So just soften, just soften, just allow it, just soften. And what that does for students is it makes them feel seen. And in feeling seen, we automatically so much of our suffering is relieved because it's a feeling of I'm not alone in this. So that's a really like physically. Yes. I can't tell you I mean, there are some students of mine in this room, so maybe during the question and answer part, they can tell you what I say. I can't tell you what exactly I say when I notice the mental and emotional suffering, but it's a lot of language around it just is. It doesn't mean anything. It just is. So just let it come and then let it go, mm-hmm. you know, and you're in it however long you need to be in it because that's what's happening. Don't fight what's happening. So much of our suffering is like, well, I don't want to feel like this, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna pretend like I don't.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, or I'm gonna feel bad that I feel this way, or
1: yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna now shame myself <laughs> mm-hmm. for feeling sad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Great recipe, yeah, <laughs> for happiness.
2: Yeah, we're real against it, or yeah. My strategy is really to use the most empowering language I possibly can um, to constantly remind people to modify. And yoga is a great teacher for me in that context, because I've always been the type of person who has to do everything a thousand percent. Mm-hmm. And while I was in yoga teacher training, I broke my finger. Not a good time to break your finger. I broke it coming out of a headstand, which I've done a million times. And that was the best lesson I could have learned, hmm. because I had to learn to slow down and be okay with doing something, quote unquote, the easy way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so now really learning to listen to my body and encouraging my students to do the same so that yoga class doesn't need to be a struggle. Mm -hmm. And when it it learn to listen, to use those internal cues, what are those messages your body is sharing with you about life, Mm -hmm. about what you need in your life? I feel so grateful to learn coming from the trauma-informed yoga Mm -hmm. trainings that I've attended, how grateful I feel now, not just for students that have experienced trauma, but for all students to know that they're empowered to choose the range of motion, the Mm -hmm. depth, the intensity, the pace that works for them. Right.
1: Yeah. And making a joke out of it too, sometimes just like lightening the mood. Man, last night, none of my jokes landed in class. (laughs) It's very painful rusty wells who used to live in the bay area and he opened urban flow back in the day um he used to call blocks rectangles of hope <laughs> i really that's love that. so helpful yeah that's yeah, awesome i've really incorporated that and then i you know getting people to pick up a block when they need it is the hardest thing in the whole world mm. and i understand why because I i too was a ballerina for 15 years and like had a lot of physical. There's
0: so many recovering ballerinas in <laughs> it's just like. Ugh. And
1: and so I had a really hard time integrating props into my practice because I was like, I can do this. I'm super flexible. Of course I can do this. And then I tore my hamstrings. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I can't do this. And but I tell people like it's just bringing the floor where you need it to be. Like get your block. It's just lifting the floor up. Yeah. You know and. Just bringing levity to that too, and like to the modifications, to to whatever's going on in the room, not making it like the end all be all. Or
0: that's interesting because I've been doing that more and more with my kid. Yeah, with like when she's like really, really she's been really, really challenged lately, and when she's really, really challenged, you know, and you try all the things like the boundaries and the kind talking and the compassion and the listening and the no, 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 no. and the kid is just like the. Like, we, we call her Joey Bag of Donuts now. And it, like, makes her laugh, and the whole thing is over. Like, the whole, the, like, she moves into the next phase. It's almost like it snaps us out of our, like, egoic, you know, narrative that's going on to laugh at ourselves. Totally. Yeah. I think we already talked about, you know, how to not make self-care narcissistic. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Like, how? what's the difference between self-care and self-obsession.
1: Yeah. Make sure it's attached to so that I can be a better person. Yeah. So that I can help other people. Yeah. Otherwise it is narcissistic. Like, I mean, I'm a very blunt person, but like period, it is narcissistic, you know? And we have enough of that in our society. And it's for those of us who are even just listening to this, that's like an indication that you're interested in this in some way. And the fact that you're interested in this in some way means you have some sort of responsibility to start to figure that piece out for yourself. I mean, that's my, I'm pretty hard line.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I like it. That's why you're here, lady. Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Thanks as always for listening. I will put a link to that New York Times definition of self-care because it had a really great a bunch of essays from staff people staff writers on how they practice self-care and it was a wide variety of different personal essays that were really funny and just enjoyable to read so I'll put links to that and other show notes at yogalandpodcast.com episode 131 and until next week enjoy your practice